Reading today is taken from John 13, and I'm starting at verse 21 and reading to the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, Who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, It's the one to whom I give the bread. I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me. But why can't I come with you now, Lord? He asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. As we prepare our hearts to contemplate God's word, let's pause in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments that you might speak to us. There are issues in our hearts and lives that we need you to deal with. We need your word to be that two-edged sword that divides right down to the very depth of our being. Minister to us, we pray, and make our response be one of obedience through your strength and to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are people, maybe you know some of them, maybe you are even among them, People who live deeply burdened lives because they always fear the worst. There is a name for it. It's called catastrophizing. Catastrophizing. It works like this. Your teenage son is out in the car. He told you he'd be home by 10. It's 10.15. He's not home. You ring him on the phone. He doesn't answer. And so you immediately conclude that he's been in some terrible road accident. Or here's a, a, a genuine example. There was one lady, she always walked her dog early in the morning in a, a wooded parkland. But she stopped doing that because she was convinced that she would come across a dead body. Because dead bodies are always discovered by people walking their dogs early in the morning in wooded parkland. 
It's a real problem. I'm not in any way trying to make light of it. And help can be given to those who find life unbearable because of the inclination to give an overly negative interpretation on any events that occur. People who imagine the worst. And in the text that Charlie read for us this morning, we discover that, that Jesus knows exactly all that's about to unfold in his life. He knows everything that's going to happen to him. And terrible things are going to happen to him. He's not imagining the worst. He's not, as they're called, a a catastrophe. He knows. He has always known throughout eternity how events would unfold. That he must endure the worst for our salvation. John records for us. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Looking into the immediate future, contemplating all that was about to befall him, Jesus was troubled. It weighed heavily upon his heart. And he chooses to share a measure of what he understood would happen with his disciples. Three things he shares about the future. And firstly, he, he, he shares that our Judas' duplicity is foretold. Judas' duplicity is foretold. Twenty-one, twenty-two. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, it's a little bit difficult for us as we try to imagine ourselves into the events of that upper room. We know who the betrayer would be. Indeed, his name has become synonymous with the act of betrayal. We know nowadays, it's very common, people choose biblical names for their their, their children. But they're not naming their sons Judas. We know that Judas would betray Jesus, but the disciples have absolutely no idea who the betrayer would be. John tells us, not that they suddenly turned and looked at Judas, but they turned and looked at one another. They had an awareness that every single one of them possessed the potential to be a betrayer. Every one of them was capable of this act. Every one of them, in their own turn, at their own time, had let Jesus die. And John then records for us a little drama that took place in which he had a a part. Jesus' action of the sop, the the, the portion of bread dipped in the sauce of the meal and, and given to Judas to identify him as the betrayer. And you may wonder why the disciples in that moment didn't act. Why upon seeing this they didn't uh, constrain Judas in some way, tie him to a pillar so that he couldn't get about this work of treachery? Why didn't they in indignation react angrily to the news that he would be the betrayer? Well, I ask you, have you ever eaten around a table with 13 guests? It's noisy. There's lots of conversations going on. In our house, Liz and I, when our children are there and all their families, that makes 13. Uh, 90% of everything that's said, you, you, you miss out on. 
Conversations pass you by. And the only reason we know of this event is because John was a first-hand witness of it. He was reclining at the table right beside Jesus. Verses 26, 27 tell us. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. You need to think about that little phrase, Satan entered into him. What does that mean? Already back in John 13 verse 2, we discover that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil entered into him. Please note that Satan cannot go where God does not permit him or where we do not receive him. It's never an acceptable excuse for sinful actions to say, well, the the devil made me do it. You see, as you look back at verse 2 of this 13th chapter, you realize that a seed has been sown. The seed of betrayal. But Judas has permitted that seed to take root and to grow. And he has planned in his mind and conceived of what steps would need to be taken to make this betrayal unfold. Judas was responsible for his thought life. As Martin Luther famously said, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And again, verse 30 says, after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out and it was night. And we're given this detail not because it's important for us to know what time of day it was, but we need to know the state of Judas's heart. He's turning his back on the light of the world and he's giving himself over to the darkness. Jesus reveals his duplicity. But even with this information being shared, the disciples had no idea what was happening in their midst. Most, it seems, throughout all of this had no idea who was the betrayer. They were still looking at each other. They were still questioning their own hearts and minds. So by way of application, I ask that you would consider the vulnerabilities of your own heart. What sins might you be capable of? Might I be capable of? Back in the mid-1800s, Robert Murray McShane wrote these words in his journal. He wrote, I am tempted to think that there are some sins for which I have no natural taste, such as strong drink, profane language, etc., so that I need not fear temptation to such sins. This is a lie, a pride, presumptuous lie. The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. So the the challenge of this text is, are we prepared to admit the truth about our hearts? That within us there is the potential for any sin. And are you, am I conscious of the seeds of sin in our hearts that we may allow to grow? And are we giving them that room for growth or are we actively, urgently seeking that they be uprooted from us? 
Last Sunday morning, we were thinking about the need to come to the one who gives cleansing. Come to the the light of the world in order that his light, his brightness would illumine the darkness of our hearts. Again, 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're called to be vigilant. We're called to be watchful on our guard against Satan's sowing of the seeds of sin in our heart. It's not easy. Sin is not clearly labeled with poison. As J.C. Ryle wrote, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors saying, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. So Jesus looks ahead and the duplicity of Judas is foretold, but also the disciples' devotion is foretold, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, remember last Sunday morning, we were considering that with Jesus, as they followed him, As he brooded over the fact that he was about to die in Jerusalem, the disciples were squabbling among themselves. With Jesus, they squabbled. How were they going to behave in his absence? How could it be that their self-promoting natures could be changed? And the answer to that question is found in asking another question. The other question is, why can Jesus say this commandment Verse 34 is new. Why is this new? Because it sounds very familiar to what has been stated all throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. Why is it new? God has always required love among His people. But this command is new because it's part of the new covenant. In Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant covenant in my blood. The death of Jesus brings to those who trust in him new life in the spirit. It brings to them supernatural empowering that enables them to believe and receive his teaching and to make the necessary sacrifice required in the response to his love upon the cross. As Isaac Watts depicts, it's a love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, when Jesus began his ministry, when he set out in the dusty roads of of Palestine around Galilee, the people marveled at him because he taught not like the others, not like those they had seen before, but Jesus' teaching had authority. In other words, his teaching had the power to back it up. So he comes to people and he says to those with deaf ears and blinded eyes, be open. And they could hear and they could see. He comes to those who've been paralyzed all their lives. And he says, stand up and walk. And they stood up and walked. He commands, but he also empowers to obey. And so he comes and says to his followers, love one another. 
as I have loved you. The same self-giving, sacrificial love is required among you. How could that be possible? It comes because God enables us. And for the child of God, central to our assurance of possessing eternal life, is to know that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5 and 5. And so we find ourselves loving others, caring for others. People we don't even like, we don't have to like them, but we are compelled to love them by the work of God within us. And here we see the outcome of the presence of such sacrificial love. But God, by His Spirit, motivates to work among believers. It makes Jesus known. There's no other explanation for such ridiculous, such extravagant love as God is in the midst of His people. 1 John 4.12, we began our service with these words. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Francis Schaeffer, you've no doubt heard of him. He was a Presbyterian minister. He lived from 1912 to 1984, and he wrote a book. It's called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And in it we find these words. After we have done our best, To communicate to a lost world. Still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives. Is the observable love of true Christians. For true Christians. You see the world is watching. There are many people they may never darken the door of a church building. But they know where Christ-like love is shared and where it is not. It can't be hidden. It can't be impersonated. And where this genuine love is lived out among believers, God's kingdom will advance. So hopefully the application is obvious. This love of which Jesus speaks here is not a feeling. It's a verb. It's an action. It only exists where it's practically displayed. And the chapter begins, verse 1 of 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The love that Jesus displays was through sacrificial service. So I ask you, what intentional acts of love, of sacrificial love, have have you engaged in for the benefit, the blessing of, of your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's not an optional extra to the Christian life. It is its very core, its central. So the duplicity of Judas is foretold. The devotion of the disciples is foretold. And finally, we see Peter's denial is foretold. Note verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Note again the the weight of that rhetorical question that Jesus asks of Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? From the very beginning, it's been very clear, very explicit what's going to happen. 
Back in John 10, 15, for example, Jesus said, I will lay down my life for the sheep. You see, Peter's greatest feeling here, his, his greatest weakness was his misguided overassessment of his strengths. He constantly convinced himself that he had something to offer to Jesus. He had some currency with which he could, could merit a right relationship with his Savior. But such an attitude is disgraceful. It's empty off and counter to the grace of the gospel. As Tim Keller writes, the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit you're completely unworthy of it. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and to acknowledge their need for a Savior. You see, it's only when in our desperate need that we receive the gift freely given to us in Jesus Christ, that we are enabled to live a, a life-giving, self-giving, sacrificial life to His glory. Following the pathway of self-reliance led Peter to abject failure. And like Judas, these dark hours, these trying times, put his faith to the test. A test which he failed catastrophically. But unlike Judas, his awareness of his failure turned him away from himself and turned him towards his only hope in Jesus, the Savior. Because of his deep sense of need, he would be restored. He would be set back on his feet. He would be turned again to this path that would cause him three decades later to take up his cross. And to lay down his life. To follow after his master through crucifixion and into glory. And so the application is this. We need to have a healthy distrust of our own abilities. And we need to have a limitless dependence on the reliability of Jesus. A healthy distrust of our own ability and an endless reliance upon Jesus' reliability. The Canadian commentator Bruce Mullen writes, The seeds of the failure of both Peter and Judas lie embedded in each of our hearts. We know what it is both to deny Jesus and to betray him. We can only cast ourselves daily on his limitless mercy, knowing that he will not cast away even one of all who come to him. See, you and I must not run from the light and hide in the darkness, hoping that somehow the sinfulness of our hearts might there remain undisturbed. You and I must not ask to shy away from our sins. But rather, we must with boldness pray, Lord, show me more of the horror of my sin, of the darkness of my heart, that I might see more of the wonder and worth of the beauty of the cross of my Savior. We're not secretive of our sin. We confess it openly, knowing we have forgiveness in our Savior Jesus Christ. 
who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we think on the actions of your chosen, two of your twelve, betrayal and denial. They walked with you, they ate with you, they listened and learned from you. They were used by you in service, and yet, in the time of testing, they failed. Lord, we must understand the vulnerability of the human heart. As your word makes clear, our hearts are desperately wicked. They are deceitful. They mislead us time and time again. They want us to to believe that we have confidence in ourselves. We can do these things. We can live this way. But Lord, as we come to your word, you tell us again and again that we can't. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Lord, we do not deny our sinfulness. We do not try to play it down or excuse it away. Rather, we confess it openly, Lord. We deny you daily. We uh, let you down in so many ways. Forgive us. Bring us into the light so that the blood of Christ would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pour your spirit into us. Take control of our lives. Be our strength in the weakness that we face daily so that all honor and glory might belong to you in any effective service we might get. It's all of grace. Nothing of us. To Jesus alone be the glory. Amen.